It's kind of ironic that I was sitting there thinking another sermon series, as uh, Brother Shaw said. I thought, boy, that sounds kind of seeker-sensitive to me. But the subject matter before us today is anything but seeker-sensitive. And so God quickly encouraged me that, don't worry, you're not seeker-sensitive. I do want to look at the subject of the doctrines of grace. Let me give you some reasons why I thought it was important for us as a church to look at this, that most of us know, that many of you can come up here today and teach us about, probably better than I can. It's a subject that we know as good, reformed Calvinists, at least most of us, that have come to the settled conviction of the doctrines of grace. But one of the things that propelled me to do this, provoked me to do this, is that I'm still convinced that even in our church, as small as our church is, there's still some of us, some among us, who view the doctrines of grace mainly as controversial, mainly as something that is just mysterious and difficult and scary and does not ever produce or fuel the type of warm worship and ardor and affection to God that it ought to. And for that reason, I think some of us have not rightly apprehended the sovereignty of God as we ought to. The doctrines of grace are not just talking points, apologetics points. They're not just points of controversy to argue with your friends and family that disagree with you. The doctrines of grace are like a, are like a sharp weapon, like a sword, that when put into the hands of an immature child can cause either great harm or put into the hands of a skillful warrior can... Uh, produce great protection and sort of a fortified uh, uh, safety guard for your Christian life. In other words, you could either use these doctrines to crush or you could use these doctrines to care. You could either nurture people and disciple and love and challenge or you can uh, create a bad name for yourself. You could use this to harm the frail and fragile faith of others if you don't do it in a right spirit. So there is that potential, and I have shed very much theological bloodshed on this issue. And I am just as guilty as anyone of being in a cage stage with my Calvinism And there was a day where if you disagreed with me on Calvinism, I would just whip out the doctrines of grace and proceed to lop off your head. I don't want to produce that type of thing, unless you're provoked. Don't get me wrong. There's always an element of cage stage that should always remain in all of us. When pushed, when provoked, when put to the task, we have to respond biblically. And some people, no matter how compassionate, no matter how loving, no matter how humble, no matter how meek and mild you may be, you may be as gentle as Jesus. And like Jesus, when he preached on the sovereignty of God, everyone walked away. And his disciples were tempted. They felt the tug to go with the crowd. Let's get out of here. This is out of control. 
No one can come to you unless the Father draws him. What is he talking about? So, I think there are several reasons for doing this, but um, I want to give you a six-part series, not five, as you may have thought. Six parts because we need to begin with what's most important of all, and it is not the doctrine of total depravity. It is actually the doctrine of God's total sovereignty. The total sovereignty of God. Fewer doctrines in the grand canopy of Christian theology are as precious and as important as the absolute sovereignty of God over all things. There is nothing that will affect a believer more profoundly than the discovery that God does everything according to the counsel of his own will. Psalm 33:11, Isaiah 14:24. By the way, I highly recommend that you take advantage of the sermon manuscripts that will be posted on Heritage Grace's website because I counted the number of verses that I've got in my first manuscript, almost a hundred, just cross-references that I put in. And, and, and let me tell you, uh, that wasn't a, just a bunch of cut and paste. I mean, that nearly costed me my life last night. <laughs> it, it, each each, each cross-reference was checked and scanned and appropriately posited at every point of my sermon. So I really suggest you take advantage of these because that's where the power of any theology is at. It is in the text. It is in the Word. It is in the Bible. And so take advantage of that resource. But as I said, it is one thing to know that God is sovereign in a sort of a general way, the sovereignty of God. It's another thing to really understand the depth of his sovereignty, to really understand the, the infinite wisdom of God's sovereignty, the fact that he works everything out according to his purpose, and that purpose is displayed for the glory of his grace, for the glory of his his grace. And simultaneously, that the sovereignty of God means for us not only that God does everything for the glory of his own grace, but that that for our eternal good as well. I mean, the passage that so many people know so well that is in all the Bible promise books that have ever been written, all things work together for the good. That is a Calvinistic text. For those who are called according to his purpose. And so we know that in studying the sovereignty of God, we are studying that which tends towards our greatest good. But first, let me give you some preliminaries. Number one, looking at the absolute necessity of the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God is a non-negotiable issue. When you come to Scripture, you must believe in the sovereignty of God if you'd be thinking the thoughts of God after him. In the early 20th century, the church, the universal church that is, received one of the greatest, most eminent works ever produced on the subject of the sovereignty of God, namely A.W. Pink's The Sovereignty of God. If you have not read it, you must read it. It's one of those books you must read before you die. A.W. Pink said, 
To say that God is sovereign is to declare that God is God. Amazing. I had to resist the temptation to just quote everything A.W. Pink said. At one point, I had to put the book away. So I was like, what am I going to do? I just stand up here and read it, you know? What could I possibly add to the conversation after this? In other words, as we diminish the sovereignty of God and bring it down, we diminish the divine nature of God itself, God's godhood, God's attribute of what it means to be the infinite almighty being of the universe and of eternity. And equally appalling is the idea that God would be usurped by anything other than himself, that he would be usurped by any other principle or power or entity as sovereign, whether Satan, angels, demons, man, or fate. Nothing can replace the sovereignty of God. But if you remove the sovereignty of God, you better believe that something is going to fill the void. And so... Sadly, many people who distort and remove God's sovereignty run to philosophy, run to logical, the logical syllogisms of their own mind instead of following the mind of God in Scripture. So we cannot ever undermine the sovereignty of God, as A.W. Pink insists. We will dethrone God if we undermine his sovereignty the bible assigns sovereignty absolute sovereignty in all things only to god all of the time so it's necessary to look not just at the necessity of the sovereignty of god but also at the practical vocabulary of this sovereignty every time the bible speaks of god as almighty as supreme as King, as Lord, as Master, as God, it is expressing, in essence, the absolute sovereignty of God. The most fundamental aspect of God's sovereignty is His freedom. His freedom. Psalm 103. These are good verses. Psalm 103, verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Psalm 115, verse 3, our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. Psalm 135, verse 6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven, in the earth, in the sea, and in all depths. That's an amazing Hebrew construction, by the way. It is intensifying as it descends. Heaven, earth, sea, and into the depths of the sea. God does whatever he wants. Isn't that amazing? I remember going scuba diving several years ago. I was so scared, I sucked the tank down in about five minutes. I had to come back up, get another tank. The guy's, the guy's like, man, what are you doing? <laughs> You're just... <laughs> I was scared. I was 50 feet under the water, for crying out loud. Anyway, I strapped another tank on the back of, you know, I went back down under there. What was so amazing is that this scuba diver broke the rules. He told us this after. 
He took us deeper than we should have gone, 80 feet. We're 80 feet under the water, and guys, I was in another universe. It was a whole other world under there. Vast schools of fish, giant fish swimming right next to me, yellow fish, orange fish, white fish. It was incredible. There was 60-foot plant seaweed growing out of the side of a rock underwater. I was like, this is a whole other world where the sovereignty of God reigns supreme, although nobody is there to enjoy it except him. Except him. It's amazing when scientists make a discovery of some creature under the sea or somewhere that no one has ever seen, a new species that they've found that no one has ever been enjoying except God. You see, people think there must be life somewhere else. It cannot possibly be that life should exist only here. After all, what is everything out there for? You see, that is the fundamental man-centered, anthropocentric-centered view of the world. It assumes the universe exists for our delight. It does not. The universe exists first and foremost for God's own sovereign, omnipotent pleasure. That's what it is. That's what's there. Before the Mars rover went there, God was enjoying every aspect, every beautiful, every element, every molecule, and every planet of every galaxy in the entire universe. God, totally, absolutely sovereignty. You can study the sovereignty of God either from a galactic perspective and stand in awe of his sovereignty as you look into all of the vast reaches of space just consider the 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 breadth and length and depth and height of the universe just look at the galaxy the stars the planets if you don't if you've never done that If you've never seen something like God of Wonders, a DVD that shows you all these magnificent things, if you've never done something like that, boy, you're missing out because God created that to show off his handiwork. But you can also study the sovereignty of God over all things on a microscopic level. Every molecule, every subatomic particle, Everything that man's eye can't see, God sees, enjoys, and is sovereign over. It's just amazing. It's amazing. We're surrounded by God, his sovereignty. When Daniel interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream, turn to Daniel chapter 4, by the way. It was this exact point of God's freedom and absolute sovereignty that this earthly despot was forced to acknowledge and ultimately came to confess. Daniel 4, 34. Daniel chapter 4, verse 34 and following. But at the end of that period of time, that is, after God had humbled him, drove him out into the field, made him eat grass like a wild beast, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me. This is a man finally thinking clearly. He says, And I bless the Most High, 
I praise and I honor him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? There is no one to contend with God, in other words. No one. The king of Judah, Jehoshaphat, when they were being invaded by the Moabites, declared the absolute power and dominion of God over all of earth, all of heaven, when he said in 2 Chronicles 20, verse 6, O Lord, the God of our fathers, are you not God in the heavens? Are you not ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in your hand so that no one can stand against you. So the language of God's sovereignty is rooted in the total and absolute authority and dominion of God over all things. God is fully aware that at the present time we don't see this. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8, we do not presently see everything subject to him, though it is. And we will not see it until the return of Christ, when he comes back, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, to destroy his enemies and to deliver his church. Then we will see the consummate dominion of God brought to earth. And he will reign on the earth for a thousand years. He will reign on the earth and bring in and usher in an everlasting kingdom and create a new heavens and a new earth where his sovereignty will continue to reign on and on and on. And if you don't like the word thousand years, don't blame me. It's in the Bible. I know you may not like the timing of the thousand years. I got it. But at any rate, no matter where you are on the millennial chart, <laughs> we can all agree God is sovereign and he has ordained everything that will come to pass according to his wisdom. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. Quickly, he says, We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. It's amazing to you and I that we lose sight of what life is all about. And in times of duress, distress, persecution, in times where it seems as if the church, his back is against the wall, when it's time where it seems like things are out of control, chaotic. I mean, just look at what's going on in Iraq today. One, um, one politician called it a jihadist Disneyland. But jihadists are just going up and down the streets of Iraq, Mosul and other areas, chopping people's heads off and leaving beheaded bodies on the road. I mean, this is the kind of world we're living in. And yet what a comfort it is to you and I to know that God is sovereign through it all. So this brings me to the preeminence of God's sovereignty, not just the necessity and the vocabulary of it, but also its preeminence. In other words, that we must believe that his sovereignty is prior to all other powers, that his sovereignty takes preeminence and holds priority over all other things. We dare not imagine a world where God is not sovereign. To imagine such a world would be to assign sovereignty to something other than God, 
which of course is impossible. Angels are not sovereign. They have no ability to usurp God's sovereign purpose. Angels, whether demons or elect angels, do God's bidding. They serve his purpose. They cannot thwart his plan. That's why Jesus assured his disciples, by the way, that is why his disciples were assured that they will overcome. Luke chapter 10, after they had gone on a, on a whole mission trip of, of exercising demons and doing all of this ministry work and miracle working, Jesus said, I watched Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions. That's not talking about real serpents and scorpions, by the way. Over, this is what it means. Over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Nevertheless, this is how you know this is what he means. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. What an amazing verse. Now, we also see, therefore, the sovereignty of the Creator above all creatures, whether angelic, whether human, all other creatures, regardless of their position, their status, their category, whether they are slave, free, bond, king, politician, president, emperor, ruler, it doesn't matter who they are or what position they hold, they are subservient to the sovereignty of God. Just amazing. Satan tried to compete for God's sovereignty in the garden, and he was cast out. He was cast out of the garden, just like he was cast out of heaven. In the garden, God also cursed everyone there because they all questioned his sovereign decrees, his sovereign will, his sovereign commands, his authority to rule and to reign in the garden. And so man was cursed. Satan cursed all of the human race, cursed for questioning and undermining the sovereign power, rule, and authority of God. But when it comes to his sovereignty, there are three areas particularly that need to be talked about. Number one is his creation. Number two is the cross. And number three is redemption or salvation. But it is that God means to display his sovereignty to us. I love this. I love it. If we want to learn about the sovereignty of God, we have to go to God for it. The fact that God wants to display his sovereignty means he reveals his sovereignty to us. Isn't it amazing that when you study things like the sovereignty of God, when you get into the controversy of Calvinism, you're going to have to choose your authority. What's going to be your authority? Is it going to be Scripture and Scripture alone? Or is it going to be experience? Is it going to be philosophy? Is it going to be logic? What is going to be the, the standard, the rule, the canon for your thoughts on the sovereignty of God? Well, we cannot learn what it means to be God except from God who revealed himself in his word. So first, God's sovereignty, his sovereignty is displayed in creation, in all of creation, as we have already talked about. God is sovereign over all of it. Whether we're talking about a sparrow that falls to the ground, whether we're talking about the number of hairs that you have on your head right now versus what you'll have tomorrow, or a flower in an open field somewhere that no one sees, 
but that God dresses up beautifully for his own glory. God is sovereign over all of it. God is in full control. Spurgeon said it best long ago, one of my favorite quotes from Spurgeon. I was able to track it down. Spurgeon says, I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. That every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit as well as the sun in the heavens. That the chaff from the hand of the winnower is steered as surely as the stars in their courses. That the creeping of an aphis, a little insect creature, over a rosebud is as much fixed as the march of the devastating pestilence. And that the fall of a sear leaf from the poplar tree is as fully ordained as the tumbling of an avalanche. He who believes in God must believe in this truth. Wow. Wow. Long ago did the prophets speak of this very thing. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 10. Jeremiah chapter 10. They speak of God's sovereignty, but not only that, they speak of his sovereign, meticulous maintenance of the whole universe, the whole creation, that God sovereignly maintains and superintends everything in creation. Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 12. It is he who made the earth by his power who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding he has stretched out the heavens. When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens, and he causes the clouds to ascend from the end of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain and brings out the wind from his storehouses. Simply amazing. Fascinating, folks. Don't look at creation any other way. Don't look at creation merely for its beauty. Look at creation as a reflection of the beauty of God and his sovereignty and his power and his meticulous providence and his intimate acquaintance and his intimate involvement in every detail of our lives. That is what a beautiful sunset ought to convey to you every day. That's what a shooting star should convey to you. That is what... Beautiful landscapes. I like mountains and lakes. What do you like? Some people like tropical scenes. Some people like galactic scenes. Some people like to look at the, at the, the lights, the uh, aurora lights. You know, they like to look at that kind of stuff. I like mountains and lakes. When I take a vacation, I want to go to the woods. If I could, I'd go to a cabin with no electricity, nothing. Of course, I can't because I'm married to Trisha Ramos, who has to have the internet at all times or she will perish. <laughs> I love creation. I know all of you do love creation, but it is just a picture. It is just a reminder of the beauty and sovereignty of God. It is God's meticulous superintendence of the created order that distinguishes him from the false gods of the, of the pagans. The false gods of false religions are, as Scripture says, stupid. That's God's words, not mine. God said they are stupid. They are deaf. They are dumb. They can't smell. They can't see. They can't hear. They can't move their arms. Jeremiah says in chapter 14, he says, 
Are there any among the idols of the nations who give rain? Or can the heavens grant showers? Is it not you, O Lord, our God? Therefore, we hope in you, for you are the one who has done all these things. If you go to Mecca, inside of the most sacred spot of all the Islamic world is a shrine. That shrine is called the Kaaba. Inside of the Kaaba resides a little black stone that Muslims venerate. They believe it is a sacred stone that came down. Historians think it was a meteor at any rate. The stone is covered in centuries of people kissing it, women rubbing up against it, people weeping on it. Why? Because they think if they do that, God will bless their crops. God will give them fertility. God will bless their life. And so they go to this inanimate object and they weep on it and they expound tons of emotional energy on it. They kiss it profusely, thinking that Allah will respond in a blessing. And the Bible says, we hope in you. Our hope is in God. There is no volition in the sky. There's no volition in a rock. There's no volition in an idol that's been carved out of a tree. God's sovereignty in creation does not just mean that God is sovereign over the weather, but the fact that he is sovereign in all of creation of anything we can conceive, both good and evil. Isaiah 45, verse 7, a verse that you must reckon with. God forms the light, creates the darkness, he causes well-being, and he creates calamity. And then he takes full credit for it, full responsibility, unapologetically. I am the Lord who does all these things, creating calamity. I saw calamity several years ago. I forgot what year it was. It was the, um, it was the 9.0 earthquake in Japan and the subsequent tidal wave. I watched that late at night on live television. Some of the live television that they captured, they wouldn't replay the next day because it showed a tidal wave going 10 miles inland, 10 miles inland, and crushing everything in its path. Now, all growing up in my childhood, I lived about seven miles from the beach, Fountain Valley, Southern California. I can't imagine the beach coming 10 miles inland and crushing everything in its path. Hundreds of thousands of people dead. And that earthquake certainly did kill thousands and thousands of people. God says, I create calamity. He ordains all things, as the Westminster Confession says, all things whatsoever comes to pass. And yet, he removes himself from the viciousness of the act so that he himself is not the direct agent through which evil or harm comes. But he uses secondary causes to accomplish his ends. And that is where the wisdom of man stops. That is as far as it goes. God ordains all things, and yet 
He cannot, as Job says, be charged with iniquity. He cannot be charged with lying, Titus 1-2. He cannot be charged with going against his nature, 2 Timothy 2-13. He cannot be accused of sin, John 8-46. James says it best. God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Although he ordained the temptation of David and Bathsheba. But he himself did not tempt David. And that is the truth of Scripture that we have to hold in tension. We have to hold that in perfect tension. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, we get a clue. Genesis 50, verse 20, we get a clue of something that happened that was absolute evil, total evil, nothing but evil. The total betrayal of an innocent man by his own brothers, his own people. And I'm talking about Joseph. As his brothers betrayed him, overthrew him, through envy and jealousy, they, ca- they grabbed hold of him, threw him in a pit, abandoned him, left him for dead, eventually sold into slavery, where through the meticulous sovereign providence of God, he ascended to the throne of Egypt, where he does not say God had nothing to do with that, as many people do. I did my cousin's funeral many years back. One of my my relatives came up to me and asked me, did God have anything to do with this? She was murdered for her faith. A jealous ex-boyfriend came into her shop late at night where she was um, conducting business. She was a wealthy real estate broker. She had converted to Christianity and got broken up with him, stopped giving him money. He couldn't take it. In a fit of rage and in a fit of envy and jealousy, he broke into that store, stood behind, behind my cousin and shot her in the head and then shot himself. And my uncle was asking me, did God have anything to do with this? I said, absolutely. God is sovereign over everything that happens. What do you want to imagine? A world where, God, where, where the world is in chaos? What do you want to imagine? A world where God just backs off and says, I'll just let things work out however they will. Nothing has meaning. That's deism, folks. That's fatalism. The problem with fatalism is that it has no appreciation for the glory of God. If you are a fatalistic Christian, that means you do not prize the glory of God. Because everything that happens, happens for his glory. Joseph said to his brothers, you meant it for evil against me. But God didn't mean it at all. No. He says God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. What a picture of Christ. So we move on to that. The sovereignty of God displayed supremely in the cross of Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Acts Chapter 4, I'm giving you the big ones here. Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 24. It does no good to look at human suffering as the great challenge to the doctrine of theodicy. What is theodicy? Theodicy is the relationship of God to evil. It does no good to point to molestation, rape, murder, genocide as the greatest example of the injustice of evil. 
The greatest example of all time in human history is the cross of Jesus Christ. The most appalling, diabolical, purest evil that has ever taken place was the murder, betrayal, and ultimately the crucifixion of God's holy son. Blameless, innocent, and holy. And all of it ordained by the hand of a sovereign God. Acts chapter 4, verse 24. When they had heard this, they lifted up their voices God, to God with one accord and said, O Lord, and that word there can be translated sovereign. O sovereign Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth, they took their stand, and the rulers were gathered against the Lord and against his Christ. Truly, in this city, here are the details. There were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, verse 28 is crucial, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. This is the Arminian killer. Because who wants to assign blame to God for what happened to Jesus on the cross? It was such an appalling evil, such an appalling scene. The Messiah butchered, beaten, beyond recognition. His face smashed to the point where you couldn't, see, you couldn't even recognize him anymore. He was so distorted beaten and bruised and abused. He was nothing to look at. People turned away and despised him. They turned away, ashamed to be associated with that, ultimately identified as the very curse of God itself. But all the while, we know what Scripture says, that it was because God is sovereign and that God had an infinitely good reason and purpose in the death of his son, that the Lord, according to Isaiah 53.10, was pleased to crush him. Because like Joseph, through the crushing of the Son of God, many people are going to be saved alive, some of which are sitting in this church right now. And it would never have been so had God not ordained the most evil murder that has ever transpired on the face of this earth. It's all because God is absolutely sovereign. Consider the sovereignty of God in the cross of the Son of God and what happened there. He was totally sovereign over all the people. After all, it was an international coup against the king of the universe to overthrow him, to do away with him. As Luke 19, 14 says, they would not have this man to rule over them. God was sovereign over the authority of the Roman government. Jesus tells Pilate, you'd have no authority unless it was not given to you first. In other words, what you're about to do, you don't do on the basis of your authority. God is giving you permission to do this. 
And God was also sovereign over the satanic power that was working behind the scenes, fueling and provoking the people with an antichrist spirit of hatred. Think about it. All the hostility, all the animosity, all of the hatred of God leveled against the Son of God. And Jesus says, truly, as the Romans come to arrest him, Luke 22, 53, this hour and the power of darkness are yours. What an amazing statement. What is Jesus talking about? This power and the hour of darkness are yours? In other words, take advantage of it now, my friends. Because this hour is all that you will ever get. This is the time for the demons to dance, as it were, over the the death of the Son of God, to think that they have somehow overthrown Him. This is, the only, this is a brief little moment where darkness will seem as if it is prevailing. But Jesus is in control of that too. Perfect, meticulous control over all principalities, all powers, all rulers, all spiritual hosts of wickedness so that they did exactly what God's hand and God's purpose predestined to do. He gave them that authority. Think also of the sovereignty of God and fulfillment of biblical prophecy. All the prophecies that were fulfilled just are expressions of God's sovereignty. Dozens, hundreds, hundreds of prophecies probably fulfilled in Jesus' cross work alone. That God would crush the serpent, Genesis 3. That God would provide an ark of salvation, Genesis 6. That God would provide himself a sacrifice, Genesis 22. That God would spill his blood to keep the covenant to Abraham, Genesis 15. That God would send a kinsman redeemer, Ruth 3. That he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah 11. That no one would break any bone of his body, Exodus 12, Numbers 9, Psalm 34. And that his garments would be gambled away, Psalm 22. That he would sing in, sing among his brethren on the cross, Psalm 22. That he would be buried in a rich man's tomb, Isaiah 53, verse 9. That he would rise on the third day, Hosea 6, Jonah 1, 17. That he would be exalted to the right hand of the Father where all his enemies would be his footstool, Psalm 110. And that his death and resurrection would justify God's elect, Isaiah 53, verse 11 through 12. This is the sovereign, meticulous hand of God bringing everything to pass according to the counsel of his will. Let's pray. Father, Lord, so much more can be said about your sovereignty. So much more can be rattled off as proof that you are absolutely sovereign. Sovereign in creation, sovereign in the cross, and sovereign in salvation. We pray, Lord, as the coming weeks we continue to look at this doctrine that it would be for us not only points of contention and points for us to wrestle and grapple with theological truths and theological points and perspectives, but, Lord, that we would stand in awe that we would come into a newfound reverence of fear and an awe of who you are. Lord, we know that there is only one sovereign in the universe, and you are it. 
And we're grateful, Lord, that your sovereignty has such good designs. You could have easily worked your sovereignty to damn all of humanity. But Lord, you chose rather to redeem an innumerable people for yourself. Father, it is us, it is your people who stand in awe, give you glory for all of your sovereign grace. We thank you for your glorious grace. In Jesus' name, amen.